0: chapter 16. Sunday morning we're studying the book of Acts together and we come now to chapter 16. If you're hit with us this morning without a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and just wave and they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage for your convenience this morning and that way you can hear the Word of God and see it with your own eyes and have a double impact upon your lives. I've got a new clock up here. It's kind of got my eye a little bit. My other one died, so they got me this one. It's a big clock, isn't it? Look at the size of that thing. Wow. Okay, if any clock can keep me on time, that clock right there will do it. All right, Acts chapter 16, verse 11. And therefore, sailing from Troas... We ran a straight course to Samothrace and the next day came to Neapolis and from there to Philippi which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia a colony and we were staying in that city for some days and on the sabbath day we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us, and she's a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, and she worshiped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, "'If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord,' Come to my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her master's much profit by fortune telling. And the woman followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul greatly annoyed. Turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive Or observe, And then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. And having received such a charge, the jailer put them in the inner prison and then further fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, open supposing the prisoners had fled, withdrew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, "'Do yourself no harm, we are all here.'" And then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought brought them out and said, "'Sirs, what must I do to be saved?' And they said, "'Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household.' And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house.' And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them. And he rejoiced, having believed in God with all of his household. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. The miracles that are bound up in this account from your early church. A miracle that goes on all around the world yet today and will in every corner of the world, Lord. And we ask, as it's needed, that it would occur in this room as well. Would you give us a fresh filling and sensitivity that comes by your Holy Spirit to study your word and to learn it and to know it, Lord, and to have it impact our lives. And not only that, but to be stored away in some rich, ready place in each one of our hearts to then share with others, Lord, and the greatness of their spiritual need as well. And we pray and ask for that work of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We remember that the Apostle Paul, at this point in the book of Acts, is on his second missionary journey. And he began that missionary journey accompanied by a colleague by the name of Silas, And early in the journey, he was joined by a young man by the name of Timothy, and then now, most recently, as he makes his way uh, from the city of Troas toward Philippi, he's joined by Luke, who is the author of the Gospel according to Luke, as well as the book of Acts, and he is... A physician and apparently ultimately became a personal physician to uh, Paul. The initial vision for this second missionary journey was that Paul would uh, retrace his steps of his first missionary journey and simply return to the churches that had been established on that first missionary journey to see how they were doing. You remember in so many cities they were run out by persecution. Did a church get established? How is that church doing and so forth? And the desire to go revisit now two years later these churches, see how they're doing, and Paul to see if he could in some way encourage and strengthen them in their relationship Uh, with the Lord. And in the course of that second missionary journey, as they're following this intent that they have uh, on their heart uh, to do, uh, God hinders them from continuing on the journey that they had planned. And He supernaturally redirected them from going into a a province of the Roman Empire known as Asia. And then when they tried to go north in what is modern-day Turkey to a region called Bithynia, the Holy Spirit wouldn't allow them to go there either. And ultimately, they made their way to a city of Troas which would be a part of westernmost Turkey today on the Mediterranean Sea. And there they waited for direction from God, for what does he want the remainder of the missionary journey to be. And as they're waiting there, Paul received a vision. And it was a man of Macedonia who was standing and pleading with Paul in this vision and pleading with him to come to Macedonia and to help us. And God was here directing Paul and his team now to enter into Europe and to bring the gospel for the very first time uh, into uh, that place. And upon receiving this vision, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke as well, they recognized this was the direction they'd been waiting for uh, from the Lord. And so they set sail for Greece, Macedonia being northern Greece, and uh, what we know as northern Greece today. And because of very favorable winds and sailing, they made the journey, the 156-mile journey, uh, across the sea there uh, in two days, landing in the city of Philippi after a single overnight uh, stop. And all of this sets the stage for our Bible passage this morning, which is essentially the record of the salvation of three very disparate people, three people who are very different from one another in virtually uh, every way. First we have the salvation story of a woman by the name of Lydia, and then the salvation story of a young girl who was possessed by a demon, and then finally the salvation story of a jailer who was in charge of the jail in the city of Philippi. I don't know that most of us as Christians ever tell our testimony often enough. And I think that uh, in our interactions with one another as Christians, it's great to talk about the things of the Lord, certainly the things of the Bible, what's going on in our life and so forth. That's the highest uh, use of communication and probably the highest, uh, doubtless the highest source of edification in any of our lives. But one of the most encouraging and powerful things that can ever occur is for us to hear somebody else's testimony, how it is that they were once far from God, not even looking for Him so often. And the testimony is basically what we were before God came into our lives, how that happened, and then the person that we have become as a result. And it's a tremendous thing uh, to hear. And I really enjoy hearing people's testimonies. If I'm usually in a car with someone and driving some kind of distance, And we've got enough time to do justice to their testimony. I'll ask them, tell me, how did you come to know the Lord? And every story is so marvelous. It is a miracle, each one of them uh, so different. And how they came to put their trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and then to become born again as a result. Well, first we have the salvation story of Lydia. There in verses 13 through 15, the circumstances are as we have read them, but we want to unpack it a little bit. Upon arriving in the city of Philippi, having been directed by the Lord to go there, uh, now they arrive in what is a very significant city in the Roman Empire, and where do you start? How do you (laughs) take the gospel for the first time into a city like Modesto if there were no Christians? And how do you, where do you start? What part of town do you go to? How do you even start to reach the city? And Paul's methodology was uh, that he, you know, practiced over and over again was to go into a city, and his starting point was always the same. He didn't redefine this over and over again. He would find a Jewish synagogue, preach to them how it is that Jesus was the promised Christ. The promised Jewish Messiah come to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. And then having reached those within the Jewish synagogue, he would then begin to reach out beyond that place into the Gentile city uh, around it. But when he comes into Philippi, he's got a problem because in Philippi there is no synagogue there. In order to start a synagogue in a city in the ancient world, and the same thing is true of the world today. You had to have at least 10 adult males uh, uh, present within a city and of a spiritual nature in order to uh, establish a synagogue. And so the absence of a synagogue in uh, Philippi intimates that there were not even 10 Jewish families in the city. And Philippi was indeed a very, very Gentile city, a very Roman city. We'll probably talk about that a little bit uh, next week. So, where to start? Well, when there was no synagogue in a city in the ancient world, uh, the Jews would typically find a river if it was near a city, and uh, a river representing living water, moving water, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so they would find a river if it was possible, and then to make that place uh, with this beautiful creation of God, and in the context of his creation, that would become a meeting place for them uh, in lieu of a synagogue. That would be where they would go uh, to pray. And so on the Sabbath day, we're told in our passage that Paul and his group made their way to the site. That they had evidently u- learned was used by the Jews in lieu of a synagogue in order to pray, and it was about a mile outside of the city. A group of women were gathered at the site, and Paul, as he is there, he proceeds to sit down, and that was significant uh, in a Jewish context because it meant uh, a person was when a person sat down, it meant they were taking the position of a teacher, and so now he's going to declare something spiritual within that uh, context, and. Uh, here he begins to preach to them, and doubtless he shared with them, uh, the women that were gathered there from the Scriptures, how it is that Jesus was and is the promised Jewish Messiah and that salvation is f- and the forgiveness of sins could be found by simply trusting in him uh, for that forgiveness of sins. And in the account here, verses 14 and 15, the focus moves from the larger group of women and it narrows down to a single woman who is present and is listening and we're given her name of Lydia. And the Holy Spirit reveals two significant things to us about Lydia. One of those things is physical and one of those things is spiritual. On the physical or the natural level, we're told that she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, verse 14. So she lives now in Philippi, but she's 600 miles away from home. Now, uh, having been raised or uh, Thyatira having been her hometown, in the city of Philippi, she was a seller of purple dye, The city of Thyatira, her hometown, was known in the ancient world and famous for its purple dye. All dyes uh, in the ancient world were extremely valuable. They were extremely expensive. But uh, purple dye was especially so because the purple dye was extracted from the murex seashell. And so uh, you would only get just a few small drops out of each creature. Imagine the amount of of creatures you'd have to go through to be able to get the dye to even put a stripe on a single garment, much less to uh, dye an entire garment. Uh, purple. And so it made this purple dye very, very limited. It made it very, very expensive. And to have a garment that had even a portion of it be purple, let alone the whole garment be purple, it marked you as a very, very wealthy person or royalty. It appears that she sold purple cloth that she uh, got from Thyatira, treated with that uh, expensive dye, and she uh, opened up some kind of a shop there and sold the garments in the town of Philippi. And she's apparently done very, very well for herself because after she becomes saved, uh, she has a house that is uh, in a, uh, a desirable city to live in, Philippi, but a house then where she's able to extend hospitality to these four uh, brothers in the Lord at this point in time after she becomes saved, the house also containing servants and so forth. And so uh, she uh, had a home that was large enough to house all of them and servants as well. We're told that on a spiritual level that she worshipped God, verse 14. Probably a Gentile. Uh, who had come to believe in the God of the Jews and to follow the God of the Jews. It isn't unlikely that she became a God-fearer, which is what a Gentile was called in those days, who converted uh, at least partway to Judaism, uh, that she had been exposed to Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament, in Thyatira, because it had a very significant Jewish population there in her uh, hometown. And we're told in verse 14 that she believed in or she trusted the things uh, spoken by Paul. And here is the message that the open, she opened her heart up to, the message that the Lord will open any heart up to. Paul d- uh, spoke this, some variation of it to them, uh, m- spoken most famously by Jesus himself in John 3.16. And the message is basically this, That God so loved the world, that was Lydia, that's you, that's the whole world. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, that's you again, would believe in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. And she heard that message, God gave life to that message uh, to her heart, and she became saved. And not only that, but her entire household then trusted in the Lord as well, and they were all water baptized uh, additionally. And so here you have an interesting woman, this woman of Thyatira, and, uh, from Thyatira in Philippi named Lydia. And perhaps we have a Lydia or two in the room here this morning, the privacy of your own heart. No one else would know it, only you. And whether you be male or whether you be female, wealthy, industrious, successful, even more moral, religious, good, godly, prayerful, but you have never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and been born again as Jesus taught every single human being needs to be As Jesus declared to Nicodemus, a very moral, wealthy, religious man himself, in John chapter 3, Verily, verily, Jesus said to him, Verily, verily, I say to you, Nicodemus, that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I think it can be very easy to think of a person like Lydia Uh, as being virtually saved, just as they are. And if they have any kind of need of saving, they're just a half step away from salvation. But it isn't true. And because very often, this is the hardest person in the world to save of all. And hers is perhaps the greatest miracle, of all three of these salvation stories that we're looking at here uh, uh, this morning. In the context of Jesus' exchange with a rich young ruler who was also very wealthy, very moral, uh, very godly, Jesus uh, declared concerning him as he walked away uh, from the offer of salvation, and Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say to you, that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. But thankfully, he went on in that same passage and said, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And One of the things about wealth and one of the things about power is it produces within us a tendency to then trust in riches and to trust in that power, not to see my need uh, in life, even before God, and then to make those riches and that power the master passion of our lives. And Lydia reminds us that even good people need to be saved, even people who are good in comparison to almost all other people they still need to be saved you still need to be saved because the bible teaches that all have sinned and come short of the glory of god the comparison related to salvation and the need for salvation is not on the basis of how i compare myself to my fellow man uh, that's kind of a you know grading on a curve uh, the comparison that confronts each and every one of us with our need for salvation is that Jesus is the standard for the righteousness or the rightness that is required in heaven. And when we understand that that is perfection and that perfection is what is required and that one's sin disqualifies me for heaven, then I realize that moral or immoral, godly or ungodly, all of us need to put our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And Lydia, God bless her, she recognized it. She was born again spiritually, and a beautiful testimony is given to us there. And then we have the salvation story of the demon-possessed slave girl, verses 16 through 18. Now, Dr. Luke doesn't explicitly state that she was saved in the passage, but with John Stott and with others, I am very strongly inclined to believe that given the fact that her deliverance is book ended within the passage with the salvation of Lydia on one end and then the salvation of the Roman jailer uh, in Philippi on the other end, I believe that she was saved as well and ultimately became a member of the church in Philippi. You notice the condition uh, uh, that she was in is described to us, and it's a horrible condition. Verse sixteen, she's a girl; that is, she's a very young uh, woman, and she is demon possessed. You think about that as you read. You know it in in the passage uh, here, as it describes concerning here that here is a certain slave girl, verse sixteen, possessed with a spirit. Of divination. I mean, it's one thing for those to be words on on a page, but then for a a moment for us to just stop and to try and put ourselves in her place, and especially uh, in the ancient world, and 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 how horrible her life must have been. I mean, to be possessed by a demon. I mean, I think probably all of us have seen you know, scary movies or kind of demon movies or whatever, uh, growing up or in some, you know, moment of stupidity in our life or whatever it might be. I happen to have seen The Exorcist uh, on film. The book was far worse. And, uh, and uh, I, I think I've mentioned it before. I was playing basketball in junior college, and a friend of mine, he finished the book, and we were on a road trip, and he gave it to me to read and, uh, and we roomed together on this particular road trip, and he wouldn't turn the light out at night having read the book. And uh, so, but I came from a little bit of a Christian background, and so it didn't freak me out as much as it freaked him out. He ultimately became a Christian, by the way. And, uh, but, uh, so you think about this you, here to be possessed by a demon, to be possessed by... Uh, the, a fallen angel, uh, one of the third of the angels that fell with Satan in his, uh, in his rebellion, to be indwelt by something that belongs to the kingdom of darkness. Uh, and a, a demon is just a personification of evil. And here, in all evil in the world uh, has some evil being behind it. And here you have an evil that is the origin of all evil now inhabiting you. I can't imagine what the physical or the emotional or the mental torment that would result uh, from that as a result. Her condition is even worse than that. You would think that would be bad enough. But no, it's worse, we're told, because we're told additionally that she was a slave, a slave not only of the devil, but also a slave of men as well. And she's owned not only by one man in the city of Philippi, but there's a whole corporation, a whole collection of them that have come together in order to purchase uh, her. And here they saw in her and they're using her uh, to tell people their kind of demonically inspired fortunes concerning their businesses, concerning their families, concerning decisions that they're making and so forth. And they were making a fortune uh, for themselves as a result. And you think about these men... Uh, taking advantage of the condition of this young girl. It's about a co- as cold as a human heart uh, can get. To me, you just got to have a seared conscience to look and say, here is a girl who is demon possessed, and we're going to pile in on top of it, and we're going to not seek her deliverance from that demon, but we're going to seek to become wealthy off of her, and who cares anything about her uh, at all, and to use another human being in that way. So she receives no sympathy from the devil. No one ever does. But she is the kind of person that you would think would at least receive some pity and compassion from her fellow man because of the tragedy of her condition, but no, here you've got this group of men that have purchased her, seeing her as a way to make money uh, off of her tragic condition. So she's double-damned. She is enslaved by the devil. She's enslaved by her fellow man. She's all alone in the world in a way that most of us can't understand being alone. She doesn't have a shoulder to cry on. She doesn't have another human being probably in the entire city that she can sit down and talk with about where she is in life and have anyone understand even remotely where it is that she's coming from. And her only hope is in God. If, to her thinking, there is a God at all. Because if there is, how could there be a God who would allow a person to come into such a degraded condition as hers? Might be the thoughts of her mind. And if there is a God, why would he have any interest in her? Surely she would be the last person in Philippi that God would have any interest in delivering and in saving. And perhaps that might speak to someone here this morning. Raised in a demonic environment, seen all of the slasher movies, all of the horror movies, exposed to spells and tarot cards and Ouija boards for contacting the dead, and all of that stuff is real. It all opens a gateway into a realm that you want to keep that door firmly slammed, or just involved as a result of your parents or uncle or an aunt or your own curiosity into out-and-out occult practices and devil worship. It's interesting, maybe some of you have been reading recently, as I have, some of the articles that have been online concerning the increased demand for exorcists in the world and how both the Roman Catholic Church is working feverishly at this point uh, to uh, bolster the ranks of their priests who are qualified and skilled in exorcisms. But it's not just the Roman uh, Catholic uh, Church, but the main articles focus upon them and and how they're spiking the number of priests now who are being trained in regard to meeting the need. And I, I can't speak to, I read the, read the article, it's a fascination to me as a Christian And I can't speak to the validity of all of it or the validity of their training or their practices, but I'm not surprised at all in the least that there would be an increase in demonic possession given how deeply tapped our culture is into exploring and experiencing the demonic realm. Through entertainment, through books, through television, through websites, through certain kinds of music and so forth, that open up the door to the demonic realm in terms of oppression and possession. So often Christians have read the book in the United States of America, the Bible here, and they've read it now, and because of the Ju- Judeo- Uh, Christian foundation of our country, and we hear about all of the demon possession and the casting out of demons in different parts of the world, and why don't we see more of that here? It's coming. Without repentance, it's coming. Because you cannot tap into evil in the way that our culture is tapping into evil and exploring it with the kind of depth with which we are doing it on a very broad scale uh, and, and, and on an individual level as well without opening up the door to this realm. There is evil in the world, and there is a spirit behind that evil, even though our modern world doesn't like to accept it, but it doesn't make it any less real as a result. And there is a great vulnerability to this kind of thing. Not only in uh, Ouija boards, tarot cards, spells, uh, you know, palm reading and so forth, whatever it might be. But there is a great vulnerability to this kind of thing among even those who are tapped into false religion and false spirituality. This girl who is possessed by this demon... She is possessed, she, in the language of, the original language of the text, it speaks of her having a python spirit, and the python spirit, the python snake, was an extension of the Roman god Apollos. So she's tapped into the worship, in some way, of Apollo, and yet this Uh, whole worship of Apollo has opened up a door within her to now be demon-possessed. And it is a very serious business to follow false religion and to follow false spirituality today because it is as effective to opening up our heart to the demonic realm as almost anything else. I could name for you right now, but I don't want the aggravation But name for you three religious systems, one non-Christian and two that claim to be Christian and are not, which are, in my experience, very heavily demonized. And none of this is a game. When you go into buildings that are associated with these religions, when you go into parts of the world that are dominated by these religions as a Christian, there is a disturbance in the force And I'm talking about the Holy Spirit within our lives. You know you've walked into a spiritual and a demonic stronghold. And so all of this is real. And you notice what God did to deliver her there in verses 18 and 19. Paul and his fellow servants, they're going to a place to pray, probably leaving the city to go to the river to pray at set hours and so forth. And the woman begins to follow them and declares, these men are the servants of the Most High God and proclaim to us the way of salvation. And we're told that she did this for many days until Paul was greatly annoyed by all of it. Her message was absolutely right, absolutely true. But it had the potential to create confusion for people to begin to think that what this woman was about and what Paul was about was the same thing, that the spirit behind this woman and the spirit behind Paul were one and the same, and to think that the origin of Paul's message and the origin of Paul's power was the same as hers. And so Paul casts the demon out of of her. He doesn't speak to her. He speaks directly uh, to the demon. And I think he was grieved uh, additionally by the condition of the slave girl as well. And he commanded the spirit to come out of the girl in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, and that demon came out of her that very hour. You think about that. Think about what her life was one moment before that experience and what it became a moment after based upon the power of Jesus' name and the change that would have occurred. I'll tell you, I have, was exposed to a, a, the reality of the demonic realm as a young person, and, a, and I'm, by that I mean a non-adult young person, uh, early in my life. And, uh, and, and be, early began to just think, praise the Lord, that there is someone, meaning God, in this world who is greater than the devil. I was exposed to the power of the devil long before I was exposed to the power of God. And that there is in existence a God who can deliver such people from this darkness and from this bondage and to be thankful for the power and the authority of the name of Jesus in the physical realm, in the spiritual realm, or else there would be no hope for this kind of person in all of the world. It reminds me of the hymn, famous hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. Amen to the power of Jesus' Name. Let angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem. And crown him Lord of all. And of course, all of this infuriated her masters. They ought to have, uh, you know, thanked God for setting this girl free. And, uh, but instead, they're upset that their hope of profit was gone. And then finally, we have the salvation story of the Philippian jailer, There verses 25 through 34. He's almost certainly a retired uh, soldier. Uh, Philippi was a a colony, it tells us within the passage, and one of the things about uh, Roman colonies, they were these cities that Rome, Rome would establish within their empire along the main trade routes. Uh, within the Roman Empire. They would inhabit these colony cities with retired soldiers. And so there would be this strong kind of ex-military, ex-law enforcement presence within the city. How do you get someone who is uh, ex-military in the Roman Empire, how do you get them to move from Italy uh, to northern Greece to spend the rest of their life? Well, one of the things that they did is if you were a, a, a Roman citizen and you moved to a Roman colony like Philippi, no more taxes for the rest of your life. Some of you are thinking, now Now, tell me a little bit more. Do, are there any more Roman colonies somewhere uh, in the world today? Uh, I think Monte Carlo or some, you know, some place where people go to hide from that, but that was that was what the pe- the appeal was, and so he's he 's almost doubtless ex military in the same way and ex law enforcement in the same way that uh, I have a friend or two that have retired from law enforcement and uh, put in there twenty or thirty years there retired. And then now they act part time, as uh, at their you know leisure, as bailiffs in the courtrooms of the counties that they live in, in order to raise a li- make a little bit more money to help uh, ends meet. And this man seems to be in that same kind of category. Paul and Silas were delivered to this man for safekeeping after being beaten with rods and uh, he is commanded to keep them securely. He's very diligent in this and, uh, because he then takes them and puts them in the innermost part of the prison, and then further he fastens their feet in the stocks there. And then he is uh, <laughs> quite used to this environment, and after he's done that, he proceeds to go to bed. And at midnight, uh, he, Paul and Silas, they're praying, they're singing hymns to God. Suddenly there's an earthquake that occurs within that prison. And it's careful, be careful to realize that the entire prison was shaken, but no walls came down. Uh, the doors of the prison cells were opened and the chains were released off of uh, the feet and the hands uh, of the prisoners uh, that were there. And the jailer then is awakened by all of this, and he sees the prison doors open now. He assumes that all of the prisoners have uh, have escaped, and he takes a sword, and he's about to kill himself, because under Roman law, as a Roman jailer, if you were to lose a prisoner, then whatever sentence was upon that prisoner would become your sentence. And when you lose track of an entire prison, he realizes Rome is going to ultimately have to put me to death, and I'd rather die by my own sword than by a Roman sword. And so he chooses now to take his life, and Paul, seeing all of this and understanding all of it, he cries out, and he says, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And the man then called for a light, and he proceeded to uh, Paul and Silas, fell down before them. What an image it is. Fell down before them, crying out, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And in a sentence they replied, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved, you and your household. And salvation is that simple. It is received by simply trusting in Jesus as my Savior for the forgiveness of my sins and the consequence of my sin, and to recognize him to be the Savior and the salvation that pleases heaven, that pleases God. It's more than an intellectual assent concerning Jesus, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world. A person can have an intellectual assent toward him and never be saved. To believe in him is to do something. it is to say, I believe that about him, but I now choose to put my trust in him, and to put your trust in someone is to do something in the eyes of God. I choose to put my trust in him for the forgiveness of my sins, and so he did now, two expansions here briefly uh, as we uh, concerning this particular event. When he comes and he says, what must I uh, do here as he cries out uh, to him? What must I do in order uh, uh, to be saved? And Paul responds with Silas, verse 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. And there's no mention here of taking him back to the law of Moses and bringing him under the conviction of sin, seeing his need for a Savior, seeing his need for salvation, and, and then presenting the gospel to him. This guy comes, and he is already obviously under conviction related to his sin, and recognizing his need for a Savior. The reason I mention that is there's these kind of evangelism programs that have been around for a while that tell us and teach us, without exception, that in order to witness to someone properly, you must always take them to the law of Moses and then establish their need for salvation before you speak to them about God's provision for their salvation. And here's an exception to the rule there are some people who are already under the conviction of their sin. I'm not putting the other thing down when somebody's just going blissfully through life and don't believe that they're a sinner and believe that it doesn't have no big deal to God, or at least it shouldn't be a big deal to God. Is very valuable in that way. But not everyone is in that category. And sometimes you just go straight to the good news because they're already aware of the bad news without having been told. It's also important to understand that when Paul and Silas speak to this man, And tell him that by believing in Jesus, he'll be saved, and then all of his household... He's not teaching here what is called household salvation. When I was a new Christian, there was a guy on Christian television, and this is how he made his fortune. And he he had a TV program, and the whole thing must have dried up, and people learned that it was all bogus. But his, his idea was, if you're saved, your salvation guarantees the salvation of your entire family. And uh, this was known as household salvation, and he used this passage to communicate that. Paul is not saying to the man that if he is saved, it's the guarantee his whole family will be saved and that we can all have that same guarantee as well. Paul is saying that the Philippian jailer can be saved and the opportunity to be saved is open and available to his family as well. You notice uh, that the jailer and his family, verses 32 to 34, they did believe and then as an evidence of their changed life, they brought Paul and Silas into their home. Apparently, it was a living quarter within the prison somehow And they washed their uh, wounds, they were then water baptized by Paul and Silas, they then fed Paul and Silas a meal, and the entire scene uh, closes with them rejoicing in all that God had done for them that night. And what a beautiful story of the love of God, beautiful portrait of God as the hound of heaven in these three salvation stories and specifically in this final one concerning the Philippian jailer. That is this beautiful trilogy of salvation that's found in the passage. And again, you could hardly find three more desperate or different people in all of the world than these three. Here you have Lydia. Again, wealthy, educated, industrious, successful, even moral and religious and good and godly and prayerful. And from Lydia we learn that everyone needs to be saved, no matter how good or how godly we might be. And that is a vital message for the world to hear today and for people to understand There is none righteous, the Bible says. No, not one. All have sinned, the Bible teaches. And there's a consequence to it. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Lydia teaches us that everyone needs to be saved. And then completely at the other end of the spectrum, you have this demon-possessed slave girl who teaches us that all people can be saved. No matter how steeped we have been in sin or in evil or in darkness, no matter how sinful and dark and wicked our past... And there is a whole world of people who desperately needs to hear the message of Lydia that all need to be saved. But then there's a whole world of people who desperately need to hear and understand the message of the slave girl that all can be saved. And Jesus gave the invitation and the promise saying all who will come to me I will in no wise cast out. And then finally, we have the Philippian jailer, and he lands somewhere between Lydia and the demon-possessed slave girl. He is what we might call uh, the middle class of the world, and the word that comes to mind as I think of him is anonymous in the grand scheme of things. It is very easy to feel anonymous in life, in the ancient world, in the modern world. And he is in the eyes of other men, and I think doubtless in his own eyes as well. Merely a cog, an anonymous cog in this huge machine called the Roman Empire. He is nameless. He is faceless. He is dispensable. But not in the eyes of the heart or the mind of God. And you notice the enormous links that God went to in order to bring him and his family to salvation. He allows two of the greatest saints in history, two of his sons, to be beaten and falsely accused and imprisoned in order to simply bring the gospel to this man and to this family. And It is easy to feel lost and nameless and faceless in the big machine that is life on planet Earth today. But it isn't the truth about you. God created you. God loves you. God knows your name when no one else knows your name or cares to learn it. He knows all of your comings and your goings. He knows every aspect of your life, and he is deeply interested in you. And this morning, he wants to forgive you and to save you and to make you a part of his family and his kingdom. In the ancient world, the Jewish rabbis and all serious male religious Jews And it's the same today, by the way. But they would begin their day with a prayer from the Jewish prayer book, thanking God each morning for not making them a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. And the idea being that God could have no serious interest in them as compared to the Jew and especially to the Jewish male. And the Apostle Paul knew all about this, steeped in it as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And yet here, God gives birth to the church at Philippi, one of the most beloved churches and all of church history, not only by the Apostle Paul, but by many Christians today. And he does so by saving a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. He is no respecter of persons, but the lover of every person's soul. If you sit here today, and you are not yet a Christian, you may believe mountains of things in your mind about Jesus, and believe all of them to be true, but you have not yet put your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins and made him both your Savior and the Lord of your life. Why not do it today? And why not add your name and add your story to the stories that God has recorded here in Acts chapter 16, Maybe you've been coming here for weeks and even months, and God is drawing you. There's something going on, and you know that that's happening, that God is drawing you. And you've listened, and you've listened, and you've listened, and you've listened, but maybe it hasn't quite clicked for you yet that you don't get into heaven by listening to sermons, even sermons from the Word of God. But those sermons are intended to bring you to a place where in the privacy of your own heart, you surrender your will to God and honor Him in the single greatest way that God gives a human being to honor God. And that is by putting your faith in His Son and in the Savior that He sent into this world at enormous expense to Himself to provide us with the forgiveness of sins, to begin a relationship with God and to one day enjoy heaven for eternity. And it's all there for the asking and the receiving. But you must profess and you must ask. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after our service. And they would love to answer your questions and pray with you and pray for you in making that decision this morning. It's what this whole Christmas season is all about. Is The whole world will be talking about it. And, uh, you know, for the coming weeks, and then it'll move on to New Year's Day and football games. And, and again, the attempt to crowd God out of our hearts and out of our minds. But you have today. You have the weight of the work of the Holy Spirit through this Bible study today to get your attention and, his, and the knowledge of his heart to draw you into his family. So do that today. For those of us who know the Lord and we are saved, let's leave this place and maybe even before we leave this place, but with a closing song, remember your story, remember your story your salvation story. It is no less a miracle. If you knew and I knew, I only see the fingerprints of how God was at work in my life and around my life long before I surrendered. And it's a tremendous thing to just stop and remember all that he did, all that he went through to finally bring us to this place where we trusted in him. And every story is different. And to give him some time in the remainder of this day, to give him praise and to give him thanks for all we know what the part that we played in our salvation—the very small part of trusting in Jesus—but then to give him praise and thanksgiving for the fact of all of the heavy lifting he had done and has done in bringing us to that place. Let's stand together now, and we'll pray together. Thank you, Father, for these three stories. As Christians, our hearts explode with joy over reading about them. And you know they do because we know something about what they felt and what it means to be taken out of darkness and brought into your marvelous light. And Lord, we thank you this morning in the privacy of our own heart for all that you did, the long weeks and days and months and years of never giving up, Lord, until that day came that we were willing to surrender to you. And after so long a period of resistance, to wonder why we resisted it all, given the glory of the life that you have walked us into. We bless you. We praise you for saving us, Lord. And we do so in the name of the person who made all of it possible. In Jesus' name, amen.